Greetings on this good day that the Lord has made. I'm Joel Van Hoogen, and this is the Bread of Life. Our program is presented by the International Disciple-Making Ministry Church Partnership Evangelism. I encourage you to learn more about the amazing work we're doing all around the world. You can go to traincpe.org, or you can follow all the links at our webpage, breadoflifeboise.org. In the first two verses of 2 John, John tells us that as Christians, we love one another in truth, because of the truth, and by means of the truth. Now, the first thing that we can note is that tolerance is not the power behind love. Truth is. In fact, John writes this epistle to warn against false teachers. Their false teaching is an attack on Christian love. Paul will add that we should also keep guard against those who say the right things but don't live according to the truth. All such actions are attacks on the spirit of love that should abound in the body of Christ. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Paul writes, and I think this is important to note, that Paul is singling out those who claim to be Christians. He's not asking us to exclude relationships with people in this state who are outside in the world. No, we're to go to them, we're to love them, and we're to embrace them and bring them in. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an adulterer or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Obviously, tolerance was not the remedy for a loveless church. John shows us instead that it's truth exalted and embraced that is the remedy. And if we would grow in love for one another, what we see here is that we must grow in the knowledge of this truth and the experience of this truth. Our love will be in proportion to our application and appreciation in the truth. So let's look at this really quickly. John describes this expression of truth leading to love in three ways. And the first thing he basically says is that we love in the truth. He says, I love you in the truth. And the idea there is that there is an environment in which he brings this forward. He is saying that the believer and himself and all of the Christians that we live in an environment that is, in a sense, all of the world we see through the canopy of truth suspended over our lives. And out of that, we love. The way in which we practice love is it's a love that grows out of truth being at the forefront. Truth being preeminent. And when truth is at the forefront and preeminent, the interesting thing is that it leads you to inevitable position where you love one another. You know, at the end of the last century, the evangelical church was moving away from doctrine and dogma and teachings and intellectual considerations, and they were moving more towards a pragmatic focus on things. Pragmatism basically says, if it works, it's good, right? Pragmatism actually can change accordingly to any church. The direction of church can change, not primarily being swept along by the truths that they teach and they behold, but swept along by whatever their agenda is, whatever they think is the outcome they want to reach. And so if a church, for example, said, you know, what we really are aiming for are spiritual experiences that we can grow and unite together in, then ultimately they'll teach that if something produces a positive spiritual experience, that it's good. That's a good thing. Or if they decide that really what we want to pursue together are social causes, and we will wed ourselves to whatever then is beneficial to help us exercise ourselves and give expression to the very social causes we want to be a part of. And that's what will be the thing that they consider good. 
If your aim is expanding numerical membership, you'll find whatever technique or whatever policy will add to the numerical expansion of your congregation. There are those who will say, you know, really what we want to do is we want to make people feel good. We want to help them overcome their insecurities and we want them to feel good about themselves. We kind of want this to be a place that's a healing place for their wounds. Well, that's all a good thing, but if that's your ultimate end, then anything that helps hurting people feel good about themselves will be the thing that you'll consider good. That will be the thing that will be weighing it upon you. And so if it builds up your self-esteem, if it assists you in coping with the difficulties in life, well, then that's considered good. Other people say, you know, really what we just want is we want unity and harmony together. We just want a sense of togetherness. And so anything, we might even actually not say certain things if in some way it might ruffle anyone's feathers because all we want is let's just all get along. And that's pragmatism. If it leads to a good spiritual experience, it's good. If it leads to a positive social outcome, it's good. If it brings about numerical growth and expanding adherence, it's good. If it has a therapeutic value, it's good. If it creates an environment of harmony and unity, it's good. Now, of course, in Christian pragmatism, there has to always be some level of commitment to certain articles of the faith. But when pragmatism rules, it's not those articles that persuade us and guide us. It's outcomes that persuade us and guide us. That kind of had become the habit of the church through the 80s and 90s and into the new century they're in. Pragmatism. If it, if it works, it's good. But the problem with pragmatism is that ultimately it's not concerned about what is true and absolute. Ultimately, it's concerned about your optimum experience of what we say is true and absolute. We're concerned about whether you encounter it and experience it, and that's what rules. But the church began from an encounter with certain facts. And those certain facts supported certain truths. And those truths transformed certain people into a very certain and defined fellowship. Here are the facts. Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again from the dead. And we are eyewitnesses of this. <laughs> there are your facts. That fact then established a series of truths. It affirmed a series of truths. Jesus was then indeed the Son of God. He was the only Savior from sin. He was the Lord of life. He was indeed, as He said, the only way to the Father as the way and the truth and the life. Whatever He said, whatever He taught, goes. It's the standard of our life. His Word is our command. His Word is the very arena environment in which we are to live our lives and express out our love for Him and our love for others. We cannot live in love towards Him or towards others if we step away and stand outside the declarations of His Word. He teaches us the very nature of God. He teaches us our own natures, made in God's image but broken and fallen in sin. He declares to us His way to repair us and change us and forgive us and cleanse us. He shows us the very nature of salvation. He propounds to us from that point the very way in which life, eternal life, is lived out. He establishes the mission for His people. He gives us the charter for our community. He tells us the when, and He tells us the where, and He tells us the how long of our service. He does. These things that He taught us then kind of were brought together to formulate a systematic body of teaching and instruction that the apostles passed down 
to one generation, and that generation has passed down to us. And this truth was the ground of their life together. 2 Timothy 1, verses 13, Paul says this, Hold fast to the form of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love. That which was committed unto you, keep by the Holy Spirit which dwells in us. Also in 2 Timothy 2, 2, Paul says this, The things that you have heard from me, I love that. Paul is being general about a certain body of information that he taught, and it was so clear and so precise and so ordered and so outlined that he could speak of it in a general word and everybody would know what it was. The things, this body of truth that I have systematically taught to you, and you've heard from me among many witnesses, you're to commit to faithful men who in turn shall be able to teach others also. So when the early church gathered together, they were formed and their identity was formed around an understanding of the truth. They didn't talk about my truth or your truth. They talked about the truth and they clung to it and they held to it. And it was the rehearsal of that truth and the exploration of that truth and the guiding of that truth to the very feet of the Lord Jesus to fall in love with him and live for him and be bound to him that established the very life of the church. In fact, the church, when Christ formed it, on the day of Pentecost, immediately began to express itself in four central ways. And the first way was in the study of that truth. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Go there for a second. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Just a little bit looking at this. And you'll see this. Acts 2, verse 42. On this day, in the first day of Pentecost, over 3,000 people believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, repented of their sins, were brought into His saving influence, And we're brought into the life of the church. And then the church began to grow from there. And verse 42 tells us what they looked like when they got together. It says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. These are the four key expressions in any church, any local church. There was a doctrinal focus upon the teachings of Christ by the apostles. And then when they were receiving this doctrine, these truths laid out and organized and set before them, there then came a point of celebration of these doctrines, which was their fellowship. Again, it wasn't to play games with one another. These individuals had been, as a result of their faith, driven out from their community. And they didn't get together to say, you know, I have nobody else to play cards with tonight. They were driven together because of this truth that had transformed them and changed them. And now the second expression of their life together was that they fellowshiped around it and they rejoiced in those things together and they identified what they were learning and how they were growing. And there was also a ritual element. See, the doctrinal focus was being taught it. Then there was out of that a celebration, which was their fellowship. But then there was a ritual element where they commemorated their doctrine and their fellowship together by breaking bread. That's where they opened up and celebrated the Lord's table or the communion. That was a ritual. That was a ritual that confirmed and commemorated this great truth that had created this wonderful rejoicing fellowship. Then there was a responsive or relational element rising from these teachers, rising from that fellowship, rising from that spirit of commemoration of united prayer. They prayed together. They took the things they were learning and experiencing together and they they gathered up together and expressions of communication before God for one another and for the mission that He had given them. There's a reason why teaching comes first, though. See, it says that they met first for the apostles' doctrine, then for fellowship, then for the breaking of bread, and then for prayer. 
It would have been impossible to have fellowship. It would have been impossible. What would they have commemorated? Have ritual. It would have been impossible for them to have any prayer. It would have held no meaning to them unless it was all unified under a teaching, a doctrine, unless it was all unified under truth. Did the early church have great spiritual experiences? Read Acts chapter 2. They had profound spiritual experiences. Did the church make significant social impact? There's no more wonderful picture of a communal church and the social impact than the end of Acts chapter 2. The church produced growth in its followers. They were growing. They were generating a spiritual growth in life, and the church grew numerically. Were people's lives being put back together? Yes. Was there harmony and unity? Read it again. Read Acts chapter 2. Yes, the end of it. We read it in our scripture reading this morning. But were any of these things the focus and concern of the church? Is this the argument that the church put forward for its validity? And the answer is no. The church did not engage in the science of experience, social impact, growth, therapy, or unity. They only gathered together to pursue the truth. The truth became an environment to produce these other things. The truth that has set us free from condemnation has also set us free to love one another. Here's a test for you. Truth is not truly being celebrated if we are not truly loving one another. This has been the Bread of Life, a ministry of the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho, and Church Partnership Evangelism. To learn more about our ministries, go to traincpe.org or go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until next time, may the Lord bless you richly.